Let's go back in time some 6,000 years ago. The earth is without form and void. Darkness envelops everything. But then from the darkness, a voice speaks out, let there be light. And creation begins being spoken into existence. The heavens are formed, the oceans are gathered together, land masses appeared, vegetation and trees sprout up, the sun, the moon, and the stars are placed in the sky. Waters are filled with living creatures, birds take flight, animals walk the land, and then God scoops up some dust. And with it, he forms his most treasured creation, man. And God decides that this special creation needs a special place to call home. So he plants a garden of unprecedented beauty, flowing with rivers, teeming with life, a place that by all accounts is deemed a paradise. And he puts man inside it. And so we're introduced to a place called Eden. Now let's move forward 4,000 years. A lot has transpired since Eden. Jesus is on the earth because man has rebelled and a rescue mission is in effect. He's teaching about repentance, telling people of the closeness of the kingdom of God. He's healing, he's loving, he's serving, he's touching the very creation that he formed with his own hands, but his physical time on the earth is coming to a close. And knowing this, Jesus moves to a place to pray and another garden comes into view. A garden that's beautiful in its own right as well, situated on a mountainside, meticulously maintained and manicured, full of the plumpest olives that you could have ever found. This garden is Gethsemane, but it's no paradise experience. So over the next few weeks, I wanna share with you what we're gonna call a tale of two gardens. Eden and Gethsemane, two gardens, separated by 4,000 years, but linked together in one magnificent plan of redemption. But before we get too immersed in the specifics, let's get to know the gardens a little better. And we're gonna do that from the subject of apples to olives, because we're gonna see that these two gardens aren't like comparing apples to apples. There will be some similar features along the way, but they're mostly different in what takes place among them. Now, I will tell you that tonight's message may sound and feel just a little bit different from the ordinary because I wanna do a lot of teaching tonight. So I'm gonna give you quite a bit of what you might consider to just be information so we can get to know these places very well. It's a series, that means you've got to come back. So if you're here this week, you're locked in for like the next four, sorry. But it builds upon itself. So you gotta, you gotta be here for the whole thing if you're gonna get the entire tale worked into your life as well. And just FYI, we don't know what exactly the fruit was Adam and Eve bit into. The Bible doesn't actually specify, but we'll stick with the apple 
since it's always seemed to take the blame for being the fruit of the fall, but we don't know exactly that that's what it was. So just for some random knowledge purposes, in case you didn't know, the Bible never actually specifies that it was an apple. It was just fruit of the tree. So let's take a look at these two gardens. First up, Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter two. And I'm just gonna give you a couple of seconds to get there because it's literally like five pages in your Bible. So you don't need that long to get there. Genesis chapter two, we get a glimpse of the Garden of Eden and what's taking place there. And I'm gonna start reading actually in verse eight. And God's word says that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground, the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So God creates man and even creates a special place for man to live. Adam and Eve are given this garden by God as their place to call home. Now, allow me, if you will, from this point forward to be your garden guide as we take a look into Eden. The first thing that you need to see about Eden is that this is a place of paradise. As a matter of fact, the name Eden itself means just that. It means place of paradise or place of pleasure. Its beauty amongst all of creation was unparalleled. And try to picture it with me, because I think Eden is maybe just one of those things that we are so accustomed to hearing about in the biblical narrative that oftentimes we don't take the chance to really picture it for what it was and just how magnificent of a spectacle it was and just what a gorgeous place it was that God had chosen to give to man to call that his home. The Bible tells us that it held every tree that's pleasant to sight and good for food. A pristine river flowed through it as its water source. A river, by the way, that was unpolluted. 
completely uncontaminated. And we can't even fathom that in our modern day because if you drive by any body of water that surrounds us nowadays, you're going to find garbage in it. Now imagine finding a creek, imagine finding a river, imagine finding any kind of body of water that is completely unpolluted completely uncontaminated. I mean, the water would probably have been so crystal clear you could have seen 10, 15, 20 feet down. It's completely untouched. The Bible also tells us that this place was minerally rich. He says that gold could be found in this place. Bedellium could be found in this place. And I know what, all y'all know what that is, right? So there's no need to explain it. Y'all are real familiar with bedellium. Everybody say bedellium. It's a cool word, right? Like, I feel like maybe me and Ashley, if we have another kid, might go with bedellium. What do you think, babe? That good? That worked for you? Bedellium is, simply put, a resin. It's basically something that would be used in those times for fragrance. So you ladies, if you lived in biblical times, you might be found wearing like the latest bedellium fragrance. Like Calvin Klein had nothing on bedellium back then. So bedellium was just a resin. It was a fragrance. We're told that onyx stone was found there as well. Onyx is a very, very ornate rock that was used in those times for jewelry purposes. So very gorgeous, black, dark colored stone that they oftentimes used to carve out jewelry with. So we get this picture of Eden and there's every tree that's pleasant to sight and it's good for food. And there's this beautiful river that flows through the middle of it to be the source of its life and the source of its water. It's mentally rich. It's got gold. It's got vanillin. It's got onyx. It's got all these precious minerals and metals that can be found in it. There was not, picture this for a second, because I don't know that we grasp it always. There was not a single dead or dying thing among it. Now we look at nature around us today, and right now it's springtime. Everything's budding back to life. But even amongst the trees, you can't drive any stretch of road without looking out into the woods and seeing trees that are dead. Whether they've been struck by lightning, whether they've been snapped by the wind, whatever it may be, there's, there's death even amongst the life that we see around us, even as pretty as it is this time of year. There's not a single dead or dying thing among this garden. It is the epitome of life. It is indeed paradise. Which hear me say this, that being said, this testifies to the fact that God has always desired the absolute best for his people. At its inception, this garden reveals God's goodness and reflects God's glory to his created people. He has always, since the dawn of creation, been about the best for his people. This is a place of paradise. It's also a place of blessing. This creation account, it tells us that God placed the man in the garden. So if you go back and look in verse 8, it says that the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So this garden was God's gift. It was God's blessing to man as his most valued part of creation. Let me ask you, have you ever gotten someone that you love just a zinger of a gift? I mean, like you put all of your thought, you put all of your heart into it for one time in your life. You actually listen to somebody that you love talk about something that they would really like to have as a gift. 
and you paid enough attention to actually go out and get it for them. And then their birthday came around or Christmas came around or whatever. Like You didn't even think you were going to make it all the way to that point because you were so amped about this gift that you knew that person was going to love so much. You just couldn't bear to sit on it any longer. And then the time finally comes where you could give them that well thought of, well mulled over, well fought for, hard worked earned gifts and it delivered. I mean like you, they open up the wrapping and it is just like they are over the top that you got this for them. It's like the thing that they wanted. They're like, oh my goodness, I can't believe you actually got this. one of the greatest gifts I've ever gotten. Every now and then, sometimes we give each other good gifts. I mean, you hit a home run with it. This was God with the garden. And it was like the greatest thing. It was like the most thought out thing. It was like he had man in mind the entire time. And he thinks, man, what, what could I give my most treasured creation that would just wow them like all oh, get out? That when I set them there, they're going to look around and just be in awe of the fact that I would give them something like this. That was the Garden of Eden. That's why it's a place of blessing. Adam and Eve hadn't done a single thing to warrant or deserve this treatment or this gift. It came straight out of the loving heart of their creator. You know what it shows us? It shows us that God was showing man his favor as the very good part of all that he had made. If we would have read earlier in the account, it talks about all the things that God created. He saw that they were good. But then he creates man. And you know what he says following that? Now this, this is very good. I don't want to bless this. I want to show a, a great gift of love to this part of my creation. It shows man God's favor, that he loves him, that he wants to bless him, that he wants to give him good things. Eden is a place of blessing. It's also a place of enjoyment. It was God's desire that man enjoy to the fullest the paradise that he was in. So if you go back and look in verse 15, we see this transpire. It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat from the day that you eat of it. You shall surely die. So God puts man in the garden and he gives him the responsibility and a task to, as he described it, work it and keep it. Man was to work, if I could highlight two words, man was to work and keep. In other words, tend or care for the garden that God had placed him in. Now, I think it's worth explaining that many people think work was something God placed upon man as a result of the sinful fall. But that's not correct. Work was never a judgment from God. Work was something that God established before sin ever even entered into man's heart. And so the difference between the work that we find in the garden and the work that we endure today, so to speak, is the reality that sin entered into the world and it warped our view of what work is supposed to be like. As a matter of fact, part of God's judgment was just that, that work would become more laborsome than how it was ever intended to be in the garden. In the garden, it was to be enjoyed. 
In the garden, it was to be something that Adam participated in every single day. His alarm clock went off, he slapped it, and instead of just like begrudgingly rolling out of the bed, oh, yeah, I gotta go to work. Instead, he hits the alarm clock, and he's up instantaneously, and he's like, I get to go to work today. Said nobody ever in the modern day. They're like, man, do something that you love. You'll never work a day in your life. I've never found anybody that did something that they loved. I mean, there are things that are enjoyable. Let me be candid. I love what I do. This is awesome, what God has called me to. But let me tell y'all something. On Monday, it's a job. On Tuesday, sometimes it's a job. On Wednesday, it's a, this is a job just like anything else. And sometimes I just drudge. Sometimes I dread it. That wasn't to be the case for Adam in the garden. Work was to be fulfilling. Work was to be satisfying. Work was to be something that he enjoyed every single day of life. God says, work the garden and keep it, tend it, care for it. Take care of this precious prized gift that I had given you. And on top of all that, God says, you have free run at any fruit you want. Have it all. Feel free to indulge in the grapes over here like as big as basketballs. Have at it. Maybe you want to go over here in the pomegranate section. Maybe you want to get some cantaloupe and watermelons that are so big like you can't even pick them up. I don't know what all the fruit look like. I'd imagine it was amazing. God says, have any of it you want. Just, just that one right over there. Just don't do that. But have any of it that you want. Enjoy. Work, eat, sleep, enjoy. It's all yours. All yours. Have at it. You and Eve. But, but watch this. I, I got to point this out. God planted the garden after he created Adam. Which tells us that he had to have designed this garden just for him. He made it in a way, I believe, that he knew Adam would love. Why? Because God has been about that abundant life for his people since the beginning. When Jesus showed up on the earth, and he says, follow me and I will give you life abundant. That wasn't a new concept for God and his people. That was something that he established at the very beginning when he placed man in the garden. He says, here's you an abundant life because I'm about giving my people, my creation, a life unlike anything else that you could ever experience elsewhere. It's a place of enjoyment. Adam should be having the time of his life in the garden. It's also a place of communion. Eden was a place of communion. You know what communion is? It it means intimate, close relationship. I love this part about the garden. So let's go and look at verse 19. Verse 19 says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them, whatever the man called the living creature, that was his name. Skip down to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon a man because there was a particular helper that was absent. For Adam, So he caused him to fall asleep in the rib that the Lord God took from the man. He made into a woman and he brought her to the man. The man says, last bone of my phone is flesh of my flesh. Call a woman because you're taking a man. Therefore a man should leave his father and mother and leave and hold fast to his wife and has to become one flesh. And a man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. We got to go. It's like 923. I got to pick it up. This is a place of communion. It's a place of intimate, close relationship. The, the Garden of Eden was a place the first marriage ceremony was ever performed. Which, by the way, set the template and design by which God created and established the covenant relationship of marriage. Adam and Eve were to experience relationship with each other. But the most beautiful relationship that they got to experience was with God. They had perfect fellowship with him. 
He walked in the garden with them. Imagine taking a garden stroll with God. Their relationship with him, it was completely unfractured. It was direct, it was constant access, constant conversation between the two of them. God talked to Adam like they were friends, face to face. Eden provides us with a deep revelation of the relational nature of God. He loves his people and he desires to have a closeness with them. Eden's a place of communion. But unfortunately, it's also a place of tragedy. Eventually, things go horribly wrong. We finished chapter two, we didn't get to chapter three, but in case you're not familiar with the story, that one tree God told Adam and Eve to stay away from, you know what they did, right? Of course you do, because it's built in in all of us. We can have complete freedom to do whatever we want, but the moment somebody tells us not to hit like the red button, what you wanna do? Hit that red button. Deception comes in through the serpent. Sin enters into the world. The relationship is fractured. Adam and Eve are expelled from the paradise that God had made just from them. And things spiral from there. Now let's go to Gethsemane. Move over to Mark 14. Mark 14, verse 32. Y'all got to hurry up, man. We got to get this thing going. What are we doing? So they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping? Take any rest. It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See my betrayer is at hand and immediately while he was still speaking Judas came one of the twelve and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders now the betrayer had given them a sign saying the one I will kiss is the man seize him and lead him away under guard and when he came he went up to him at once said rabbi and he kissed him and they laid hands on him and seized him but one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear a funny little side note, in, in the other gospel recordings, we know that Peter did this to the high priest servant whose name was Malchus. And after doing so, Jesus reached down and picked his ear up and put it back on the side of his head. True story. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching. You did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him fled. A few thousand years later, we find Jesus at the end of his ministry on the earth, knowing his arrest and his trial and his crucifixion are close at hand. He has one last supper with his disciples, and then he goes out with them into a nearby olive grove, a garden area that we know to be Gethsemane. Now, let me show you some things. Where Eden was a paradise, Gethsemane is a place of pressing. The name Gethsemane itself means oil press. It was an area where they would press the olives to release 
they're old, but here it's Jesus who is going to experience the pressing. And unlike Eden, this garden is anything but a pleasurable experience for Christ. This place is not a paradise for him. So heavy is the weight of what Jesus knows is about to be put on him that the Bible tells us he began to sweat drops of blood. So like olives being pressed to release their oil, they would put them in the press and they would put just enough pressure to squeeze down on top of them so they would begin to release their juices, to release their oil. In the same way, so much pressing is being placed upon Christ that the weight of what he knows he is fixing to have to go through, that he begins being pressed so much so that he is the one that begins to sweat. He is the one that begins to release blood. Where Eden shows us God's affection, Gethsemane shows us God's agony. It's vastly different. It's a place of pressing. But then where Eden was a place of blessing, Gethsemane is a place of betrayal. It's while Jesus is here that he's going to be betrayed by one of his own disciples. As a matter of fact, we read that after Judas went and gathered the high priests, he told them, when we get there, I'll identify him by kissing him on his cheek. And when I kiss him, you'll know that's the one that you need to grab. So they show up, they walk into the garden area. Judas walks up to Jesus, Rabbi, gives him a kiss. Instantly, the guards sees Jesus. Now, you need to know that culturally, the kiss in those times was a greeting or could even be seen as a form of blessing. But Judas's kiss wasn't a blessing, it was a betrayal. What a reversal. God plants a garden to bless man. Man plants a kiss to betray God. It's quite the turnaround. The very creature he breathes life in is now the one who is handing him over to die. Gethsemane is a place of betrayal. Where Eden was a place of enjoyment, Gethsemane is a place of endearment. So as Jesus entered into the garden, he, he fell down on his face and began to cry out to his father, asking him that if it were possible, this cup that he is about to have to take in reference to the cup of God's wrath, his divine judgment over the sinfulness for all humanity, if there's any way possible that it can be done another way, then please let that be the case. Yet not my will, but your will be done. Jesus knew the divine judgment and the wrath that he was headed for. And as I alluded to earlier, in such anguish, he began to sweat drops like blood. Now, it's been clinically shown that extreme stress can actually cause the capillaries to burst in a condition that we know as hematohydrosis. Turn to somebody next to you and tell them hematohydrosis. Just so you can know how difficult my job is up here sometimes. Jesus, under such anguish, begins to experience this. And so this garden experience itself for Jesus is anything but enjoyable. He will, however, though, endure. He knows this is about the will of the Father for the salvation of man. So he continues on. Three times he goes to his Father in prayer asking if there's any other way while at the same time knowing that there's not and yet still 
being willing to endure. This lets us know that Jesus wasn't there to enjoy the garden. He was there preparing to endure the cross. And how many of you are thankful he did? It's a place of endurement. And then where Eden was a place of communion, Gethsemane is a place of corruption. Though we still see relationship between God and man in Gethsemane, things are very different. Those that love Jesus, they're falling asleep. They can't even stay away during Christ's most desperate hour. Whereas at one time, man used to walk side by side with God in the garden, enjoying perfect fellowship, unfractured relationship. Things are much different now. The disciples who did love Christ, they can't keep their eyelids open to minister to Jesus' needs in his greatest moment of it. But then at the same time, there's another mob that shows up with swords and with clubs. Can you see how fast and how wide and how greatly things have degraded from the time that God placed man in the garden to the time now where he's on the earth and man is approaching him with swords and clubs? This is how corrupted the relationship has become between man and God because of what sin has done instead of intimacy there's enmity instead of relation there's rebellion instead of man hugging God he's now seizing God he's putting his hands upon him and arresting him and binding him to lead him away to a death that he did not deserve everything is broken at this point it's in shambles but that's why I want to show you one last thing where Eden was a place of tragedy, and though it may not necessarily seem like it in what we just read, Gethsemane is a place of triumph. In verse 49, they're getting ready to lead Jesus away. And he's like, man, what are you guys doing? Like, take it easy, huh? I've never done anything to any one of y'all, and y'all come out here with this riot, and you got pitchforks and torches and clubs and swords and broomsticks and whatever. I'm not trying to put up a fight. And he says something interesting in verse 49, the very last of the verse. He says, as they seize him, let the scriptures be fulfilled. See, where things went horribly wrong in Eden, things are about to be made right beyond Gethsemane. Jesus saying, let the scriptures be fulfilled is essentially him saying, let salvation be on its way. It's time. It's time for this corrupted, broken, fractured relationship that you people caused upon yourselves to be made right by me, myself, and I. Let the scriptures be fulfilled because I love each and every one of y'all. Each and every one of y'all stand out here right now with a club, with a sword, with a torch, with a broomstick. I'm fixing to go do this for every one of y'all as well. Why? Because I love you. Because ever since the dawn of creation, I've been about having relationship with you. So yes, you know what? They'll lead Jesus away to trial. They'll beat him, they'll mock him, they'll strip, they'll whip, and they'll shame him. They'll drag him away to the cross. They'll nail his hands and his feet. They'll crown him with thorns. They'll hail him with insults. They'll pierce his side with a spear. And just like it all began, 
for a time, darkness will once again cover the earth. And we're back to the exact point that we started at. But how many of you know that on the third day, light's gonna come forth once again and all things are gonna have the opportunity to be made new in the finished, completed work of Christ that began the moment things went tragic in Eden, but led to triumph that day Jesus walked out of the tomb. Where Eden set into motion the greatest tragedy of man, Gethsemane set into motion the greatest triumph of God. Two gardens, 4,000 years, one remarkable story they're gonna tell us by the time this is all over with. Are you ready for it? To be continued then. Hey, this is Trey Mitchell, college and young adult pastor. I just wanted to say thank you for listening. It's our prayer that God uses these messages in a way that challenge and encourage you to live for his glory. If you've never placed your faith in Jesus as your savior, we would love to help you with making that decision. Just reach out to us through our webpage at underwoodbaptist.org. Be sure to check back in with us next week as we again encounter God through his word here at Life.